This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 7. Chapter 3. Pickwick Papers. Part 2. Of course it is true that as he went on his independence increased, and he kicked quite free of the influence that had suggested his story. So Shakespeare declared his independence of the original chronicle of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, eliminating altogether, with some wisdom, another uncle called Wiglerus. At the start the Nimrod Club of Chapman and Hall may have even had equal chances with the Pickwick Club of young Mr. Dickens. But the Pickwick Club became something much better than any publisher had dared to dream of. Some of the old links were indeed severed by accident or extraneous trouble. Seymour, for whose sake the whole had perhaps been planned, blew his brains out before he had drawn ten pictures. But such things were trifles compared to Pickwick itself. It mattered little now whether Seymour blew his brains out, so long as Charles Dickens blew his brains in. The work became systematically and progressively more powerful and masterly. Many critics have commented on the somewhat discordant and inartistic change between the earlier part of Pickwick and the later. They have pointed out, not without good sense, that the character of Mr. Pickwick changes from that of a silly buffoon to that of a solid merchant. But the case, if these critics had noticed it, is much stronger in the minor characters of the great company. Mr. Winkle, who has been an idiot, even, perhaps as Mr. Pickwick says, an impostor, suddenly becomes a romantic and even a reckless lover, scaling a forbidden wall and planning a bold elopement. Mr. Snodgrass, who has behaved in ridiculous manner in all serious positions, suddenly finds himself in a ridiculous position that of a gentleman surprised in a secret love affair, and behaves in a manner perfectly manly, serious, and honorable. Mr. Tupman alone has no serious emotional development, and for this reason it is, presumably, that we hear less and less of Mr. Tupman toward the end of the book. Dickens has by this time got into a thoroughly serious mood, a mood expressed indeed by extravagant incidents, but none the less serious for that, and into this Winkle and Snodgrass, in the character of romantic lovers, could be made to fit. Mr. Tupman had to be left out of the love affairs, therefore Mr. Tupman is left out of the book. Much of the change was due to the entrance of the greatest character in the story. It may seem strange at the first glance to say that Sam Weller helped to make the story serious. Nevertheless, this is strictly true. The introduction of Sam Weller had to begin with some merely accidental and superficial effects. When Sam Weller had appeared, Samuel Pickwick was no longer the chief farcical character. Weller became the joker, and Pickwick, in some sense, the butt of his jokes. Thus it was obvious that the more simple, solemn, and really respectable this butt could be made, the better. Mr. Pickwick had been the figure, capering before the footlights, but with the advent of Sam, Mr. Pickwick had become a sort of black background and had to behave as such. 
But this explanation, though true as far as it goes, is a mean and unsatisfactory one, leaving the great elements unexplained. For a much deeper and more righteous reason, Sam Weller introduces the more serious tone of Pickwick. He introduces it because he introduces something which it was the chief business of Dickens to preach throughout his life, something which he never preached so well as when he preached it unconsciously. Sam Weller introduces the English people. Sam Weller is the great symbol in English literature of the populace peculiar to England. His incessant stream of sane nonsense is a wonderful achievement of Dickens. It is no great falsification of the incessant stream of sane nonsense as it really exists among the English poor. The English poor live in an atmosphere of humor. They think in humor. Irony is the very air that they breathe. A joke comes suddenly from time to time into the head of a politician or a gentleman, and then as a rule he makes the most of it. But when a serious word comes into the mind of a coster, it is almost as startling as a joke. The word chaff was, I suppose, originally applied to badinage, to express its barren and unsustaining character. But to the English poor, chaff is as sustaining as grain. The phrase that leaps to their lips is the ironical phrase. I remember once being driven in a handsome cab down a street that turned out to be a cul-de-sac, and brought us bang up against a wall. The driver and I simultaneously said something. But I said, This'll never do. And he said, This is all right. Even in the act of pulling back his horse's nose from a brick wall that confirms satirist thought in terms of his highly trained and traditional satire, while I, belonging to a duller and simpler class, expressed my feelings in words as innocent and literal as those of a rustic or a child. This eternal output of divine derision has never been so truly typified as by the character of Sam. He is a grotesque fountain which gushes the living waters forever. Dickens is accused of exaggeration, and he is often guilty of exaggeration. But here he does not exaggerate. He merely symbolizes and sublimates like any other great artist. Sam Weller does not exaggerate the wit of the London Street Arab one atom more than Colonel Newcomb, let us say, exaggerates the stateliness of an ordinary soldier and gentleman, or than Mr. Collins exaggerates the fatuity of a certain kind of country clergyman. And this breath from the boisterous brotherhood of the poor lent a special seriousness and smell of reality to the whole story. The unconscious follies of Winkle and Tupman are blown away like leaves before the solid and conscious folly of Sam Weller. Moreover, the relations between Pickwick and his servant Sam are in some ways new and valuable in literature. Many comic writers had described the clever rascal and his ridiculous dupe, but here, in a fresh and very human atmosphere, we have a clever servant who was not a rascal and a dupe, who was not ridiculous. Sam Weller stands in some ways for a cheerful knowledge of the world. Mr. Pickwick stands for a still more cheerful ignorance of the world, and Dickens responded to a profound human sentiment, the sentiment that has made saints and the sanctity of children, 
when he made the gentler and less travelled type, the type which moderates and controls. Knowledge and innocence are both excellent things, and they are both very funny. But it is right that knowledge should be the servant, and innocence the master. The sincerity of this study of Sam Weller has produced one particular effect in the book, which I wonder that critics of Dickens have never noticed or discussed. Because it has no Dickens pathos, certain parts of it are truly pathetic. Dickens, realizing rightly that the whole tone of the book was fun, felt that he ought to keep out of it any great experiments in sadness, and keep within limits those that he put in. He used this restraint in order not to spoil the humor, but if he had known himself better, he might well have used it in order not to spoil the pathos. This is the one book in which Dickens was, as it were, forced to trample down his tender feelings, and for that very reason it is the one book where all the tenderness there is is quite unquestionably true. An admirable example of what I mean may be found in the scene in which Sam Weller goes down to see his bereaved father after the death of his stepmother. The most loyal admirer of Dickens can hardly prevent himself from giving a slight shudder when he thinks of what Dickens might have made of that scene in some of his more expansive and maudlin moments. For all I know, old Mrs. Weller might have asked what the wild waves were saying, and for all I know, old Mr. Weller might have told her. As it is, Dickens, being forced to keep the tale taut and humorous, gives a picture of humble respect and decency which is manly, dignified, and really sad. There is no attempt made by these simple and honest men, the father and son, to pretend that the dead woman was anything greatly other than she was. Their respect is for death and for the human weakness and mystery which it must finally cover. Old Tony Weller does not tell his shrewish wife that she is already a white-winged angel. He speaks to her with an admirable good nature and good sense. Susan, I says, you've been a very good wife to me altogether. Keep a good heart, my dear, and you'll live to see me punch that ear Stiggins head yet. She smiled at this, Samville, but she died at her all. That is perhaps the first and last time that Dickens ever touched the extreme dignity of pathos. He is restraining his compassion, and afterwards he let it go. Now laughter is a thing that can be let go. Laughter has in it a quality of liberty. But sorrow has in it, by its very nature, a quality of confinement. Pathos, by its very nature, fights with itself. Humor is expansive. It bursts outward. The fact is attested by the common expression, holding one's sides. But sorrow is not expansive, and it was afterwards the mistake of Dickens that he tried to make it expansive. It is the one great weakness of Dickens as a great writer, that he did try to make that sudden sadness, that abrupt pity which we call pathos, a thing quite obvious, infectious, public, as if it were journalism or the measles. It is pleasant to think that in this supreme masterpiece, done in the dawn of his career, there is not even this faint fleck upon the sun of his just splendor. Pickwick will always be remembered as the great example of everything that made Dickens great. 
of the solemn conviviality of great friendships, of the erratic adventures of old English roads, of the hospitality of old English inns, of the great fundamental kindliness and honour of old English manners. First of all, however, it will always be remembered for its laughter, or if you will, for its folly. A good joke is the one ultimate and sacred thing which cannot be criticised. Our relations with a good joke are direct and even divine relations. We speak of seeing a joke just as we speak of seeing a ghost or vision. If we have seen it, it is futile to argue with us, and if we have seen the vision of Pickwick, Pickwick may be the top of Dickens' humour, I think upon the whole of it is, but the broad humour of Pickwick he broadened over many wonderful kingdoms, the narrow pathos of Pickwick he never found again. End of section 7 End of Pickwick Papers